0: Welcome to Files. Welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave. Tonzilla X-Pod at EscapingTheCave.com. Facebook, Twitter, technically, yes. You don't need it. Hey there. How are you? I think this is episode number 96. Number 100. Rapidly approaching. Record date on this one is November the 22nd of 2020. A couple of weeks after the 2020 election. Joined once again by Brian psychologist, former radio executive, current propagandist, (laughs) works in the PR industry. Sort of become my co-host here since September. Got a pretty good episode recorded for you today. Start off by talking about the election paradox. How Trump was defeated, yet the down ballot Republicans did really well, while Democrats not so much. Talk a little bit about uh, minorities within the minorities, subject of a recent Andrew Sullivan piece as well over there on Substack. Sort of investigate whether or not the moderate majority is a trend, you know, something that's going to be heard from over and over again, sort of take over the reins of the political process here, or whether or not it's going to be disenfranchised by those screaming mobs inside of George Orwell's Albert Hall. We're a little bit about team politics, identity, and Donald Trump's lost. How can these folks walk it back? How can the folks who are preaching that the election was stolen, how can they ever come back to normalcy or sanity after they put their identity out on the line like that? Talk about uh, Donald Trump's post-presidential role. What's next for him? What's next for us? Is there a worse iteration coming? Something worse than Donald Trump? Something both fanatical and competent. Talk a little bit about uh, institutional terra incognita as well. We have never been here before. The stress on our institutions, (sighs) from top to bottom, never been like this. Podcast pivots from there. We start talking about history, where history breaks down as a guiding influence on what's to come. Takes place right around 30 minutes after I'll stop talking here. We talk about the comfortable cardigan. That's what I call it anyway. This nice warm sweater that we put on to perhaps insulate us from the cold reality of what's afoot. Cliche thinking, relying upon old thinking, dependent upon old experiences, what we're used to, how that may be happening to some of us these days. History rhymes, my friends, does not repeat. Social media conversations picking up in the mainstream. We talk a little bit about something Marshall McLuhan put out in his book back in the 1960s. This is a classic book called Understanding Media. His classic phrase, his classic uh, slogan, the medium is the message. We have an exchange about content. Is it the technology or is it how the technology is being deployed by we users? The instinctual answer is, well, it's how we're using it. Are you sure? We get into it pretty good on that. Throughout a good portion of this episode, we talk about technology's effects beyond just the content, effects on us as human beings, how it changes our minds, our brains, literally, physiologically, through the process of neuroplasticity. Nicholas Carr is going to come up in this episode as well. And we also talk about the different voices we each have depending upon the technology we're using to express it. It's a really fascinating topic. Again, this episode's basically two podcasts. First half, politics, current events, stuff that's happening post-election with Trump. And we move on toward uh, bigger overarching themes. Right about 35 minutes in, it looks like. So once again, episode number 96, November 22nd, 2020. Thanks for clicking. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Everybody wants to do the we had a little pre-show chat today, and mm-hmm. uh, not really knowing where to go with it today. I've been feeling a little off as yeah, well as the I last was week or so. This
1: morning, you know, I had stuff going on. Yeah, I had to go out and do the you know Thanksgiving shopping and all that kind of stuff today. So I'm not really thinking about politics or social media much, but um, our texting conversation definitely planted some seeds.
0: So yeah. Well, let's let's start with that uh, since we're having this uh, COVID nineteen. The winter onslaught is upon us. What are you doing for Thanksgiving?
1: Uh, nothing other than cooking dinner and having a very, very, very small gathering, like four people.
0: Yeah. That's it. Uh, the girlfriend is going to her parents. It's going to be her, her parents, and her very old grandmother. I know not know. got tested. I can't say that. Girlfriend went out and got tested <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good for her. Yeah, and uh was kind of quarantining herself except for my coffee this morning. She went to Dunkin' uh-huh. Donuts and went through the drive through to get the coffee. But other than uh-huh. that, just to kind of protect her grandmother. That's that's diligent, man. I'm not going. I'm going to sit right here. Going to uh, just enjoy your ju- enjoy a solo Thanksgiving? Yeah, I used to do this all the time. Sure. It doesn't bother me a bit.
1: But I used to work. I mean, we used to be in radio. Usually we worked on Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah, I made great money doing were, that. Uh, yeah,
0: especially if you were one of the junior—
1: members of the staff or something like that, or, or, you know, you were the type that just sort of sacrificed
0: it because you knew most of the other members of the air staff had families or whatever. You'd be like, screw it. I'll work. I endeared myself to the staff mm-hmm. back in my early mm-hmm. days. As I volunteered, mm-hmm. I'd like, Hey, you want me to take a shift Thanksgiving? I don't do anything. Yeah, no problem. I worked all day on Christmas day, more than once, like, well, like I, 14 went, hour yeah. shifts. <laughs> when you're new in the business, you'll do anything to work. And yeah. so, you know, I worked every holiday.
1: Do you want me to work New Year's? Sure. Well, you know, would you mind working Christmas? Of course. I'll be there early. That's how you get work in the radio business. Did you get holiday pay back
0: then? Mm, it depended on
1: where it was. Yeah, I
0: did. I got time and, and a half yeah. for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Yeah. If you were a full-timer, you did. But, back, you know, early on, you
1: don't know, you know, when you're a part-timer, you don't get that. Oh, know, I
0: did. Yeah. did. I was, Yeah. yeah I was an hourly part-time guy. I was getting maybe 15, 20 hours a week at that time, and they, they gave did. it to me. Maybe uh, we did get, get time and a half course you know radio pay time and a half on seven dollars an hour isn't much but <laughs> well <laughs> it'll buy another three dollar pack of cigarettes back then so
1: yeah i think my first radio gig god i want to say well it was 1986 85 or 86 i think i was getting 550 an hour i want to say minimum wage was like 325 maybe wow, yeah it's like ooh, i'm getting more than minimum wage to do something
0: yeah I was making minimum wage. I was making five dollars an hour as recently as 2004 in Florida. Wow. Yeah. Well, Florida, I think, has notoriously had the lowest
1: minimum wage uh, of just about any state. I think, yeah. although they just voted to increase that minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. That's yeah. that's the paradox of Florida and the paradox of the, uh, the this this past election, where you had, you know, Florida essentially supported Trump, uh, but yet voted for a 15 dollar you know, an hour minimum wage, which is, you know, you, you could say it's kind of a liberal policy. It's a Bernie policy, right? So, so, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like um, voters coming out and letting themselves be known that these extremes just aren't cutting it.
0: Yeah.
1: Same, same thing with some of the, a lot of the red States, right. We call them red States that supported Trump in the election. Uh, they, you know, voted for legalized marijuana. The liberal side of me sees the logic in that totally, yeah. you know, de- decriminalizing drugs and, and, and making it more of a treatment uh, issue than a criminal issue. Yeah. Right.
0: Drug war has failed. That's for sure.
1: It failed over and over and over again. It's been failing since what, 1971.
0: Andrew Sullivan came out with a piece last week. He does every Friday on Substack. And one of the things he was talking about was the minorities within the minorities. The crux of his article is that there are people with varying you know, views on different topics and subjects within these groups that a lot of people think are monolithic. Like if you're a Democrat mm-hmm. or you're a Republican, let's put it that mm-hmm. way, that you're automatically against a $15 minimum wage. Right. Right. That's that doesn't, the, It doesn't work that way.
1: No, what he's describing is the moderate middle, you know, the big yeah. middle, the big, the big moderate middle of the country where those we, where we can have opposing views and, and carry them in our heads and, and make sense out of them, mm-hmm. where you can vote for a, a Democrat but still have sort of conservative beliefs when it comes to defense or vote for a conservative uh, but have very liberal beliefs when it comes to uh, sexuality and abortion and things like that. So that's what the country really is. These monolithic ends, I guess is the best way to say it, uh, just really aren't what the country is. They're just loud and they're, they're the problem they're what's putting us against each other. We're really not as against each other as we'd like to think we are. That's been studied. Times.
0: That's been studied. Stuff like the and minimum wage thing that we're we are we're closer together, regardless of party affiliation. We're closer together on like 80% of these topics and issues yeah. than we are apart. Yeah, that's true. And and
1: And most of those issues are sort of middle-of-the-road issues, mm-hmm. right? Most of the country is moderate. I keep saying it. You know, look at the bell curve, the middle of the bell curve, the middle 50. Let's say the middle 80% is is probably pretty uh pretty much down the middle of the road with a few um you know differing views on certain topics but overall we're very much in the middle i was reading um an article before we came on today it was this interview among conservatives and i think a couple of of liberal um you know um scholars let's call them and they were talking about um the election being um kind of the resounding middle kind of coming out and saying look We voted the way we did, whether we knew it or not, because we want Congress to start working together, right? Mm -hmm. So we've created this necessity to try to work together um, where we've, you know, put a a Democrat in the executive, but yet we left the Senate in in the hands of Republicans and the House in the hands of Democrats. It's this requirement for working together that we're sort of hoping for. The optimistic side of me believes that eventually we will because they have to. They have to start governing at some point. And then voters have to start asking, you know, when I voted for you, did you do everything you said you did or do, did everything that I thought you were going to do for me um, instead of looking at personality? Another article I read, speaking of personality, said we've gotten away from policy altogether. Now we're voting for temperaments.
0: Yeah, that's what Mara. <laughs> yeah, I was reading weeks. that
1: earlier. Yeah, it's it's personalities that were voted. The cult of personality, right?
0: Yeah, we don't care about like policy. By the way. Yeah, it's team politics. There was another study that I saw. I just mm-hmm. sort of caught the tail end of what they were talking about on the, the Toothache program this morning. That's where, your bump,
1: by the way. Call to personality, living color.
0: I can't. I hate I hate living color.
1: Yeah. I hate but it. But that uh, yeah. one good song was good. Oh, God, It
0: everybody. was good. That one song was good. I want to talk about Red Hot Chili Peppers and Californication, <laughs> right? Now. I hate that fucking <laughs> song. And it's every year but Californication. <laughs> Fuck you. That's when they went hitzy. You see what and, you do uh, to me, Brian? Well, at least we're not talking about politics. No, we're talking about music. Can we do a music podcast? Can we yeah, stop doing this? Yeah, I enjoyed that music podcast we did a couple weeks. I thought that sounded pretty good. About 15 <laughs> minutes of just music, right? Yeah, it was yeah.
1: fun. Well, I, I
0: enjoyed it's... putting that together. But anyway, let's get back to where we're at. What the fuck were we talking about? Uh, oh, team politics is uh, 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 how uh, sports and politics have become the – dividing line like I am team blue you are team red we are on yeah. the the glorious field of battle you know yeah. and how it's tied to identity and all this it was really interesting because it's it's stuff that I've talked about before stuff I came up with on my own is that it reminds me of those football games you're not a big sports guy but if you're if you follow sports and you're a fan of a football team and you're watching a game right or you're with somebody who fits that Description and you're sitting on the couch watching them. They're always blaming the referees. They're always claiming the other team cheated. It's uh-huh. they can never admit <clears throat> that they've lost or got their ass kicked. It's almost, almost as never. if it's human nature and not guided by some outside force, right? Right. It's the idea. And they, they tied it in, and I've done this myself. I've I've done the exact same or uh, put forth the exact same uh, philosophy is that it's an identification with that team. That your identity is so uh, sort of um, fused with mm-hmm. the the fate and the outcome mm-hmm. <laughs> of that team in that game that you can't accept that your team was beaten or maybe inferior to the other one. Well, so it's always failure the refer- is your failure. Yes, it's always the referee. It's always you only won because you... I've seen this a million times. Mm-hmm. You can be watching a football game, and I have one specific example of mine. I, I saw this happen. A guy fumbles the ball, and they have the slow-motion replay. Right. And no matter what the image on the screen clearly shows, if you want to believe that that ball went in the end zone, your eyes can be looking at the slow motion frame by frame replay. Yeah. And you will not see it not going in the end zone. Mm -hmm. It's bizarre.
1: It's human nature. It's how our brains work. It's all that kind of stuff. But once you make that commitment, you have to stick to it or you're flawed.
0: Yes, yes. Then, then you've added, I was wrong. I was deceived. I deceived myself on top of the fact that you've, you know, had your identity threatened, right? Mm-hmm.
1: That's true. That's true. Your, 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 your ego. <sighs> so that, how?
0: Your sense of self becomes damaged because this team who could give two shits about you as a human being failed. Right. So, Brian, show me your optimistic work here, your, your, the work you have for optimism. How do, how do the Trump supporters walk this back? How do they just go away? How does Donald Trump go away after the election? In the context yeah. of what we were talking about with the, with the team affiliation, the team sports, not being able to admit what your eyes have just seen in front of you, having uh-huh. to hold on to the social momentum and everything else. That's what I'm talking about. How, does, how do his fans, his fans, right? The ones well, sitting on well. his sideline that have gone come so well. far out on the limb. How do they, yeah. how do they walk that back now?
1: Well, some of them do by admitting that they were wrong. Some people are able to admit that they were wrong without admitting that they as human beings are in some way flawed, right? Right. I made a bad decision, but that doesn't make me a bad person. Um, And eventually maybe they start seeing, you know, this, the object of their desire as not being so desirable. I'm not saying, you know, all 70 million people are going to be like that. He's always going to have a group of, let's just say half of those people. Let's say there's 35 million people who are actually members of the cult. They're never going to change, right? Um, And those people might be enough to support him in his television network or whatever the fuck he does if he doesn't end up in prison in New York. Um, But then the other, let's just say the other half, the other 35 million kind of go, well, you know, uh, it was a bad choice. He was a bad president. A lot of people did. And they start to look toward the future. We, we tend to be people who generally are optimistic that's that's kind of the general set button for most people is optimism looking forward um, you know how am I going to do in the future and accepting things the way they are over we're very human beings are extremely resilient it's one of the strengths of the species is our resilience to change right. and once this change kind of takes effect if it ever does take effect and he kind of goes away and inauguration day comes and he becomes I'm sure he'll always be a factor in the news. It's going to be up to the media a lot to stop covering him um, and really focus their attention more on the new administration, which I I think they will do because, I don't know about you, but I haven't seen a whole lot of... I'm not seeing much news about him like we did. A lot of it's focused on Biden, and then and then the Trump news is his his uh, reticence to you know do the transition and get out of office and all that kind of stuff. But it's the volume is way lower than it used
0: to. Well, be. he hasn't been he hasn't taken any questions. He hasn't made any public appearances. The only thing he's yeah. done since the election is tweet. Right. That's it. Right. That's literally it. He was on the golf course during the G20 this weekend while they were discussing the global pandemic. He went out and golfed. So he's not that's the coverage. He's not doing anything. He's not saying anything other than tweeting and sending, you know, Giuliani up there to bleed in front of the cameras.
1: Yeah. So that could be, you know, part of the the answer to the question, part of the proof in the pudding is that he is kind of backing away and pulling himself out of the limelight because he knows he's lost. He just can't quite get there to admit it yet. He wants to drive this bus right off the cliff or at least right up to the edge before he gets off. Yeah, He's pouting, right? He's pouting, just like we talked about. Didn't, didn't we talk about this two or three weeks ago where, you know, it's the pouting phase and then he'll come out um, after the election's over. And, you know, he's never going to go away. Let's admit that. But the volume on him is going to get really low and lots of folks are going to have no need to to pay much attention to him. He's got that personality and it's part of his cult of personality.
0: I would agree with that if more Republicans were coming out and denouncing this sort of pouting fit. I think there's a reason election. for that. Yeah, it's, well, a, it's, it's exactly. a strategy.
1: I think they're waiting for Georgia.
0: Sure, if he's yeah. just going to go away and he's going to become a non-factor after the election, maybe it's just Georgia. But do you think yeah. it's maybe something else after that, where he's going to have the rubber stamp, be the kingmaker within the Republican Party? Because a lot of a lot of people smarter than I am. Think that he is the Republican Party, whether he whether or not he lost the election or not, that after Biden's inaugurated, that he's going to be at the helm of that party, deciding which way it goes and who is a factor and who isn't.
1: I, 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 I really just don't think that only because my my thinking is, I believe the ridiculousness of his personality and uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the fact that he was, you know. just the look, the look, the entire ludicrous administration. um, I I think people are becoming more aware of that. The people are, I think folks are becoming a little more comfortable knowing that he's not going to be the president anymore. They see this more congenial collegial atmosphere, at least with the Biden administration. Biden has done a really nice job of keeping things friendly, keeping it middle of the road. It's who he is. You know what I mean? He's, he's, he's just very, um, you know, Kindly old Joe, you know, rather than this sort of maniac that we've had for four years. And um, I, I think there are enough people on both sides of the aisle that are tired of this contention and tired of this, this intentional infliction of division on the country that I just don't think he's going to have the power that he thinks he's going to. And I don't think the smart people are thinking about that either. I've heard a lot of other smart people too, who agree more and who I sort of more agree with. And that is he's just going to, he's just going to fade away. You know, he might do it kicking and screaming, but he is going to fade away.
0: Yeah. It reminds me of everything that we've seen happen since he got into the election, since he got into the primary in 2015. Mm -hmm. People are going to come to their senses and see what he really is and just sort of marginalize and push him off to the fringes where he belongs. It's never happened yet. It it seems to me that at some point we've got to come to the, the realization and the conclusion that whatever hold he has over people is real and it's legitimate and it's not something that's just going to vanish. There was a caller That I saw posted somewhere this week called into Rush Limbaugh saying he's willing to die for the man. I saw an article from Reuters this week. They go to Texas and they're talking about, yeah, they think the election is stolen and they're willing to take up arms to protect the republic. You know, we keep waiting for this stuff to go away. We keep waiting for normalcy, for sensible America to show up and take the helm. And it hasn't happened yet. The Republicans have never stood up. The smart people within the administration never took control of the situation in the White House. So why is it that now we expect anything of the sort to happen if he has such influence and such hold, such a hold over his base? Who have such a control over the direction and the course of the Republican Party? how do we expect him to just w- fade off like a like a phantasm into the night? Well I think the next shiny thing that comes along will be the tell, right? I mean, uh, right now he's the
1: he's the uh, he's the prom date to that group of people. and and eventually that's just gonna not not be so nice, and they're gonna s- set him aside and move on to the next shiny thing. He's just he's he's a hairdo, man. he's he's gonna be gone uh within a few years, we're going to see him kind of fade away. And that is if he doesn't end up in in prison, that's in fair state, enough. ok, prison. But that could be. Maybe is.
0: maybe the next shiny thing is somebody worse. I've talked about that before that he isn't Donald Trump not, he's not he could, the extreme of right wing fanaticism,
1: yeah, but yeah, I just don't think the country's ready for anything worse than him. they're They're not ready for him again. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, Biden got 175 million votes. He got 170, and there's still a 4% difference, which is is really a resounding, almost an avalanche by today's standards in politics. Uh, Just because of the number of voters that showed up, you expect that those margins are going to get smaller just by the law of averages and how things work. You do anything, you take two things and choose between them enough times, you're going to end up with a 50-50 outcome. So the fact that there's a 4% difference is is I think a, a loud message from the Americans that we're just not ready for that. And by the way, the, the, the policy of the Trump administration wasn't necessarily that far outside of the policy of the Republican Party. And so Republicans would vote for him just to keep him in office and just sort of like you've said before, just kind of hold their nose and vote for him because there would be a Republican in office. And I think that's where probably most of those 70 million came from i think the people you talk about um, you know we always like to talk about the one person that called into rush limbaugh the one person out of the 300 million americans you know is not a representative of the uh, the rest of the country uh, you know they always like to pull you know that's their way of keeping the heat up right they always like to pull one or two instances or or film one or two violent outbursts somewhere and talk about how the country's divided when really you're talking about an extremely small Faction, I would say tenths of a percent, mm-hmm. rather than percentages. Now, as far as his supporters go, let's say half of those seventy million are diehards, right? Um, that that leaves thirty-five million, um, and they're going to have a voice. But over time, I think that voice is going to—you know—somebody else will come along and fill that void, and that group is going to get smaller over time. People are going to lose interest, or it's just human nature. Yeah. But even even if it's just one percent of those people, right? That's still, what, seventy thousand, right? Seventy thousand times. Yeah, that, yeah, that'd be seventy thousand is one percent of seventy million. So even still, if you had seven hundred thousand, let's just say still, a million. Let's say a million. It's a nice round a, number. That's a, that is a nice round number. Let's just say a little more than one percent that are like hardcore. We still got to be concerned that there are a million people in the country that are like willing to die for Donald Trump. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean that's still that's still a concern. But overall him as a person, I think is going to fade away. That's just not my optimism. That's, that's just my understanding of human nature.
0: I, I think that's a comfortable blanket to wear. I think it's a comfortable sweater to wear. And I'm not saying that condescendingly at all. I, I do. I, and I think in normal times when maybe 15 years ago, I would be inclined to agree with you, but that it, it, it runs counter to everything I think we've seen over the last mm-hmm. 15 years. That things are not calming down. The one thing I I will agree with you on is that there may be a shiny new thing coming along, and I'm going to repeat myself. I think I probably just said this, but that new shiny thing isn't getting more moderate every year. It's getting worse. There may be somebody out there who's seen what Trump's done, saw how he managed to manipulate and exploit people for the last four years, last five years, and Mm -hmm. understood that his one fatal flaw was his personality uh, disorder. Mm -hmm. And learns how to do this, but does it maybe more effectively because he has some sense about him. That could be the next shiny thing, which is even worse than what we have now because he may be competent. Yeah,
1: that's true. You may have somebody who, who who's just as crazy, but not I, as... I, uh, I told the girlfriend this
0: week, and I, I, I sensed this a little chat I had with my mother over the weekend as well. Very, very short chat. <laughs> but it's, it's like we have this... Sensibility about us and this tendency where we trust the institutions that we grew up with. Because we've seen it so much. We, we were able to rely and depend upon the institutions and the American people to kind of come to their senses. I don't disagree with a lot of what you've said about that, Brian, that we, we tend to choose the right course eventually. and all We always have. But we have never had a stress test on the institutions, on the fabric of this country, on the informational ecosystem that we have right now. I don't think that we can rely upon the things that we used to be able to rely upon. Our thinking is, has become slightly cliché, that we default to this position that we've had for mm-hmm. so long without seeing the stark reality of where we are and where we're going. None of this makes sense anymore. It's never happened. We've never had a, a breakdown in institutions mm-hmm. in this country. We don't know what it looks like. Maybe we're just complacent and don't think it can ever happen here because it never has. I'm afraid we're in the midst of that. I'm afraid we're in the midst of it. And, and the more that we look and wait for common sense to take over and wait for things to go back to normal because they always have, I think it could be a huge mistake.
1: Well, and even if they don't go back to what was normal then, we may be defining a new normal, but I'm not sure that it's as, um, as dire as you're painting it. I think we tend to learn how to live with what we have, again, back to the resilience. Um, and things tend to uh, get into an equilibrium that people can accept and, and function in. And, and when people know something is wrong, they behave in a way to correct it. We, we did it in, in this election. I think the proof is is there, you know, in that we, we, we did not, you know, the Republican Party did not, folks who are Republicans, did not vote for Donald Trump. But they did vote for their down ticket Republicans, right? Mm-hmm. And they did vote for quite a few social issues that would be considered liberal or even socialist, God forbid. That that's kind of where I'm really kind of hanging my hat on a lot of this stuff. I find a lot of comfort in that. Yeah. Um, that 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 folks did do that, and and okay, so they voted for their down-ticket Republicans. Good for them, and they voted out Trump. That to me is a
0: statement that that it can't be ignored. Something else that, that probably shouldn't be ignored. We talked a lot about the Electoral College, a few episodes back, and we sang its praises eventually. I guess if you look at the Electoral College this year. I saw somewhere, I haven't done the math on this myself, I'm just sort of uh, pulling a quote that I heard, is he's like, what was it, 100,000 votes from winning the Electoral College?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, yeah, he, he he's up over 6 million votes. Last time I looked, right around 6 million, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. I think it's like three points in mm-hmm. the popular vote. We've already talked about the popular vote, and I agree with you. Six million votes nationwide, three, four points, that's a big deal. It, it is a statement about, I guess, the temperature of the country, but Trump was still... Despite the six million in the popular vote, you know that holds as much weight as Hillary Clinton's in the practical sense of things. Her three million votes four years ago. He's a hundred thousand votes for, from being uh, reinaugurated in yeah. January.
1: Yeah, voting
0: you know, matters. <laughs> it does. So, you know, you know, I I don't know. I just I, I I'm with you. I've, I've kind of struggled with this a little bit because I see the vote totals. They the news network still i put up the popular vote totals here and there and I see it growing and growing and growing and growing like 6 million votes. Wow. That's a hundred thousand
1: votes divided across the right States. You're right. Yeah. You know,
0: yeah. Arizona, yeah. what did he win Pennsylvania by? Was it like 40 or 50, 60 no, maybe it was
1: more than that? I believe I could look it up, but you know, the, but the bottom line is he won it, right? He won it. Biden won it. Um, no matter how close it was, he won it. You know, when you're talking about the electoral college, uh, you know, it.
0: Uh, it's hard, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. You want to praise it. And you want to you want to condemn it at the same at time. The same time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm but, with you, you know, when you're, yeah. you're talking about the
1: popular vote of six million votes, that's where the Electoral College makes a difference. You know, unfortunately, Hillary's three million votes didn't quite cut it. And then with then they were the three million in the wrong states. Because at some point, all those votes become sort of wasted, right? It's like overeating. You get to a point when you're full, and if you keep eating, that food doesn't matter. It's like the same thing, like, say, California, right? And it's, you know, 50 electoral votes or whatever they've got. At some point, those votes, you're just going to get all the electoral, and all those other votes just don't matter.
0: Well, the vast majority, I think all of Hillary Clinton's... um, All you need is a majority. Yeah. All of her uh, popular vote difference, I think, came from California in 2016. And I think that if you look at it this year, I think Biden beat Trump by like five million in California. He barely won the rest of the country. Yeah. Barely. California is, you know, you've been there. I've been there. Listener, if you've never been there, California is not representative of the rest of this country. It's its own place and within itself
1: it's its own places you could divide yeah. california into three different states and they would have sure. completely different cultures
0: yeah you now you know, it's dominated by san francisco los angeles san diego that's the problem with yeah. their electoral votes yeah. northern california is not those places it's it the, the opposite arrest. argument
1: that bill maher has about the dakotas where the dakotas just needs to be combined why should dakota get why should two dakotas get mm-hmm. four senators and and california only get two right, right. yeah when california makes up like Fifty times the population of the Dakotas. yeah well, yeah, <laughs> so in those ways, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And but at the you know, at the end of the day, I mean, we could hypothesize about this stuff all day long, but at the end of the day, um, mm-hmm. you know, Biden won the electoral college uh, by as much as Trump did when uh, when he beat Hillary. and he won the popular vote by twice as much as Hillary. So it was a right. much bigger win it was. And I much still bigger turnout, a much bigger turnout. Uh, which was great. You know, it's like we said a couple weeks ago. Yes, Biden got more votes than anybody, but Trump got the second most votes than anybody. So, so it was a huge election. The more people than in the history of the country turned out to vote. I wish we could do that every time. What we have though is the I think what we had talked about before the election, and this this is a bit of a course correction. It's not a sweeping turn. It's not a big. A hard turn to port, but it's definitely a correction, and that is shown in the way the uh, election came out, as far as the presidential election, the down ticket, and the ballot measures mm-hmm. uh, that were, you know, that people voted up for and against, and and things like that. It's showing the country as being very much in the middle, very tired of this contentious contentious politics. Uh, ready for someone to come in who's the adult in the room, but yet uh, not somebody to the extreme, right? The extremes are still loud and they're getting all of the attention, but those of us in the middle are just being forgotten. I think we made our voice known in this election. I think a lot of people get that. I'm reading a lot about that. A lot of these ideas aren't my own. I'm reading a lot about analysts who have looked at this election and said, look, the American people want a divided government, but we don't want a divided population. Right. We want our government to fight and we want it to be sloppy and messy and 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 arguing and and figuring things out and working out the ideas and policies and coming up with something that works. Uh, What we don't want is a population that's divided. I heard it
0: characterized as we don't want Trump, but we want a bulwark against the far left that they don't they don't want Trump, but they also want a congressional check Mm -hmm. on extreme left politics. They don't want the alternative, the the photo negative alternative either.
1: Exactly, and 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 again, those are the extremes, and the, and they're always going to be there. They're just always going to be there, for whatever reason. They're just getting a lot loud. They're really loud right now. I think. Yeah. I think. I, well, I think. I think. Partly, it's just personality, and and the the, the personality politics that we're in right now. Um, Trump's strange behavior, his weirdness, his odd presidency just just was, was food for the extreme left. You know what I mean? It was just mm-hmm. it just gave them energy and uh, made him even louder and, and maybe even made him a little bit bigger. But now, um, you know, the, the, the silent majority, uh, which is a little bit different than probably Reagan's silent majority, the moderate majority and uh, what we call it now, uh, is really just letting themselves be known. We're a moderate country. We've always been a moderate country. It's just that sometimes the right personality comes along that just kind of fucks us up for four to eight years, but then we kind of get back on track. Um, and if, if you look at the kind of the way people get elected in the history of the country, we tend to go from one extreme to the other. But overall, as you look at the, I guess if you looked at the graph across the full 240 years, you would see us pretty much in the middle the whole time.
0: I grant that. And you may be right about all this. We'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I think within six months. I think we'll mm. be able to see sort of a trend. A calm it down. I would, maybe, I, maybe. Yeah, you might and, be right about that. But the only thing that I'm going to say is that uh, I'll go back to the comfortable cardigan, right? That this is the way it's always been looking back over history. History can be a good guide. It can mm. it can give you perspective. It can offer you, you know, just examples. But we are not in the same place we've been for 240 years simply because of the technology. Mm -hmm. There was talk on Stelter's show this morning about this decoupling of basically realities where people now have the capability to isolate themselves off into technological echo chambers and ecosystems where all they get is the information tailored to their worldview. That's where things are different. That's the, you know, if, we, if this was 1985, I'd agree with you, but it's not. And we've seen the effects and talked about the effects of technology and specifically social media and boutique news on this, on this program a lot. That's what's changed. There's, how do you, how do you lower the temperature? How do you give that echo chamber its antibiotic when you can't walk in the door? Well, I think
1: I, you know, and I'm not a huge fan of of what's a uh, Stelter. Stelter. I'm not
0: either. I can't stand him. Stelter. It wasn't him that put it out there. It was his guest.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was guest. Okay, but either way, I'm I'm I, what I'm happy about is that we're having the conversation now. You're seeing on mainstream media, people right. calling out this this notion that we're all living under different facts. A right. lot of people are going to get that message. Some people won't. Some people are incapable of reconciling their cognitive dissonance. But most people are because it, it creates anxiety, right? When you have, it's just a basic, it's human nature. You have cognitive dissonance. You have two ideas, two competing ideas. You have to reconcile them or you have anxiety. Right. In order to alleviate the anxiety, you have to reconcile them or you, you know, have to do something else. So at least we're having the conversation. It's not just you and me on a podcast and and uh, uh, Tristan Tristan's podcast. Uh, documentary. But now it's on mainstream media. I'm seeing this conversation more and more often where we're talking about, you know, we're all getting our own set of facts. I just read in a, a story um, not that long ago, where 64% of the population of, this, of the United States says social media has a negative effect on the way things are going now, 64%. So two thirds of the country realizes that there's a problem with social media and it's having a negative effect. Now maybe that's causing more people to leave social media, or at least adjust their social media accounts so that they're not getting news out of it. Um, but it, it's hopeful, you know what I mean? It's that it's that beginning of a course correction that I keep talking about, where people are like, "Oh, wait a minute, this is mm-hmm. it was fun at first, but now I'm seeing actual harm." Right. And and I just don't I just don't think that we're going to going to deal with that for very much longer. Um, it is interesting, though, I, I was going to say in this very same study, they showed, you know, the difference between you know, how Republicans feel about social media, how Democrats feel about social media. Democrats feel better about social media than Republicans do, which tells me that social media is probably definitely a more liberal leaning or Democrat leaning platform right because they they're not as offended by it as republicans are <laughs> so in, in general so that just seems like the math no, so, yeah. definitely, well, definitely. But it, but then again, I, I also wanted to make this point today, and I was thinking about it just before we signed on. We talk about we lump social media as the problem. It's the content on social media. It's the, it's the <laughs> you know, it's you not it. social media that's the problem. It's like saying, you know, because you don't like what's on uh, the news, TV is the problem. No, that program is the problem. The content is the problem. You know, I'm not, you know, I don't, I just, it just, just kind of dawned on me. It's the, the demonization of social media. Media is like the demonization of television or or newspapers or whatever other delivery device there is. Yeah. It's just a delivery device. You ever heard and of then, uh,
0: Marshall McLuhan? Sure. You know who he is?
1: I do not. I, I have through you. I do. Yeah, yeah he, he
0: founded people. the uh, field of study called media ecology, and he wrote a book uh, Understanding Media back in the 1960s. And I read this just before I came on. I've got a printout of all the highlights of the the Kindle version of the book. And he says uh, in his book, I'm quoting him here, not me, our conventional response to all media, namely that it is how they are used that counts. This is McLuhan speaking here, is the numb stance of the technological idiot. For the content, in quotes, of a medium is like the juicy piece of meat carried by the burglar to distract the watchdog of the mind. So the medium is the message. (laughs) That's his famous quote, that the content is sort of the red meat that distracts your brain from the real effect of social media. The tribalism, mm-hmm. the isolating mm-hmm. ourselves off, the delivery mechanism, how we engage in discourse, that this is all McLuhan. This is how he, he mm-hmm. put forth that technology, not social media, this was written in the 60s, but how technology alters how we think, how we interact, mm-hmm. how we have conversations, discourse, everything. That the medium itself is the factor that changes everything. Like we went from a literary culture to a visual culture with the transition from books to television.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. I mean, it's a tool. I mean, I'm just saying I have a problem with that only because it's, it's you're, 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 you're blaming the hammer for, for, for hitting your thumb rather than, you know, the user it's what's in it's how these, how these um, media are used. You know what I mean? It's yeah, but the
0: hammer affects how you're able to build a home. Mm-hmm. That's what he that's the point he's saying that there is an effect of the technology on its user. It's not just how you use it. It also affects how the user interacts with the world around. him. If you've got a hammer yeah. in your hand, you don't have to take a two by four to pound a nail into another two by four, right? Right. right. So it changes so it's, so it's a useful
1: there's a useful
0: tool it's the, it's
1: the user and the information that's on the user. I mean, yeah. I, that's just a, to me it's just a, that, that's just not an argument. It's just it's just, a, it's just an entity. How we use it is the problem. And uh, same thing as any other media, yeah. right? The difference is, you know, the, the monetization is a problem. Monetization is what causes the uh, tool to be used as a weapon, right? It's the yeah. weaponization of social media. None of this was a factor when social media first started. Yeah. It was fun. We were keeping track with our family and our high school friends. It wasn't until they figured out they got, they got smart and we got dumber. And and that's just how, how it went, right? It was it, it all came down to economics. Yeah. I don't know.
0: I don't know how I feel about that quote. I remember that I, uh, when I read it for the first time, I -hmm. cringed because that's what I've always said. It's like, and it's, it's intuitive to think that way that like, okay, well, it's just how, how we deploy this technology that matters. It's Mm -hmm. not the technology in and of itself. It's neutral and all that stuff. I've always said that, but so I kind of recoiled when I, when I thought about it, but
1: Yeah. He He may be pulling in human nature, right? He may have an understanding of human nature that says no matter what, you might be able to argue that it's the tool, but as as a person who understands human nature, you might be able to say it doesn't matter what the tool is. We're going to figure out a way to use it in a bad way.
0: Yeah. You know, technology does change us. It does change how we interact with each other. You know, it changes the discourse. It changes the dialogue. You know, look at texting. Our ability to write a sentence. Yeah, we, we yeah. had this go. We had this happen a couple of weeks ago. You remember, we were texting back and forth. You said something in, a, in jest to me, and I, I interpreted it on this end. It, for whatever reason, it doesn't matter right or wrong why I interpreted it that way, but mm-hmm. I interpreted it as something else because it has changed how we've interacted. Fifteen years ago, yeah. we would have been on the phone, and there would have been voice inflection and all this other stuff, and we yeah. could have picked up on those cues. We can't do that. This is changing how we interact.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was being sarcastic. And, of course, you can't do sarcasm no, in a text. wish uh, you could. And, and if you don't include the emoji at the end of right. it, then it becomes a, an issue,
0: right? It, it's it's so in we, the eye of the beholder. not are the, learning re- the relearning how to communicate, which is,
1: yeah. uh, to, I don't know, we're unlearning how to write. I can tell you that for a
0: fact. Well, that's a result of the tech, though. That's not a, a matter of how you use the tech. It's, it's a result of, of the technology's effect on us. Mm-hmm. So it does, it changes us. It's not just the content. It does change us and we have changed,
1: you know, completely because of the technology. Um, and, but we've also changed, I think in a lot of good ways too. So, uh, again, hard, let, let, <laughs> let, let the optimist in me, you know, think, think through yeah. this a little bit, but you know, as you know, we, we tend to look for the silver lining in just about everything. And as, as I do. And so, and so technology has given us, I, I can't even begin to count how many positive things in our mm-hmm. lives, including mm-hmm. tech, including texting tech. Um, it's, it's, it's just in human nature to become lazy about it. So we've learned how to spell things differently, type things differently, and it may not be wrong. You know, uh, you know, linguists might, might argue, that use use of emojis and and abbreviated words and sort of this shorthand that we use it's just another way of communicating another language, um, you know. Some people have have uh, equated emojis back to hieroglyphics, so it, it's not necessarily a bad thing, except for those of us who like myself take a little bit of um, time to get used to change like that. Uh, You know, I'm a person who took a lot of English courses and I've, you know, always had some skills in the use of the language. Uh, But, and when I see it butchered, like I do in texting, I almost take it offensively. But you have to realize that the times have changed to the point where this is a way we communicate. And it's not that bad. It's very nice to be able to just send a quick text to somebody in shorthand that you need something rather than, Making that phone call or sending that fax or you know what I mean? Yeah, I've been reading this. uh, I'm just blathering now, but the bottom line is we've gotten way more positive than I think negative. However, however, the weight of the negative might be more than what we're ready to deal with you understand what we can understand and how yeah. we can process it yeah because the negative side is pretty heavy stuff
0: yeah as far as uh, you know changing in, in in abbreviating words i was going to use this piece i'll probably get to this i th- i th- probably add this later or maybe do another podcast uh this week but george washington i have a book of his writings here and it's not edited so on, the author that. just took it verbatim from paper or whatever, put it into a book, and, it, and I was reading his uh, farewell address because I was curious about his his actual words, not an interpretation of his words on uh, the effects of factionalism, his warning to the American people at his farewell address. Anyway, uh-huh. these all of these books are filled, especially Washington, with abbreviated words. He puts mm-hmm. ABT in for about. He's got, I mean, it's 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 mm-hmm. really interesting to read this. And <laughs> the spelling oh my god <laughs> the entire people in the 17 or 1700s 18th century didn't give two shits about how they spelled something it's clear well it wasn't a well, standardized spelling of anything and these guys aren't stupid well, language know. changes you know and even back then we were still bringing some of our you
1: know our mm. uh,
0: oh, our, our, our
1: linguistic abilities from merry old england yeah um, speaking of which you know over time um, um thanks to, uh, I want to say Jacob Grimm, Jacob Grimm, one of the great linguists uh, of Grimm's fairy tales, by the way, yep. linguists uh, in the century, he sort of described how our language changes. One of the first people to, to do that and, and how we went from old English to middle English to the English uh, where we basically are now up until the time he died. But, uh, uh, you know, it just changes. Language changes and we're in the middle of sort of another change like that. Would you rather be speaking old English right now? I, I wouldn't. I could barely read that
0: shit. So got it. <laughs> this isn't even really old English, I don't think.
1: No, 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 no. That's just and that's it's hard to read very this formal.
0: shit. Yeah, it's the words. I, I've learned a lot of words. <laughs> you know, my, my vocabulary is grown. but you have to. Mm-hmm. You, there's some change that that takes place in your mind. You have to really force yourself and give yourself the patience to adapt to it. Mm-hmm. But eventually, you you do. You kind of pick up on the 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 cadence and the the flow of it and. It's, yeah, uh, Sentence
1: construction was way different. Yeah, it's weird. You know, very more formalized.
0: Yeah. Just in the
1: 20th century, there have been uh, just so many changes in the way we write things that have been become acceptable. Yeah. You know, like, uh, you know, I remember getting beat up for ending a sentence in a preposition. Remember those right. days? No. Now it's like, who cares?
0: <laughs> I didn't have that you know? kind of education. So. <laughs> oh, I did. Oh, God.
1: <clears throat> I had a hell of an English teacher yeah. uh, for a few years. But, uh, though you know, we used to get beat up for that. And. You know, proper use of semicolons and commas and all these things, but all a lot of those, a lot of those rules are just kind of in have the you ever of. noticed
0: th- th- this this whole concept, this whole train of thought is fascinating to me. Uh, mm-hmm. Starting with McLuhan and how technology has sort of changed who we are, uh, as far as taking us from a literary, a written culture, a mm-hmm. writing culture to a visual culture to a hearing mm-hmm. go, back to almost back to the storytelling culture of yeah. prehistory, right?
1: Yeah, and yeah.
0: It, it really is fascinating to me because I've noticed. Mentioned this on the show, I think, before that I do a lot of a long handwriting in my journal, stream of consciousness stuff. I started this Good. in 2004, and I might yeah. go back and read it. You can tell I was not used to writing anything, even 16 years ago. My very hand short heard,
1: sentences, short choppy sentences. Oh my sentences. god!
0: And the yeah. handwriting was just terrible, you know. Oh. And I, I noticed it. I'm like, I don't know how to do this. Anymore. Yeah. Sixteen years later, I, and through the course of writing the blogs and my travel writing and my my other stuff that I've done, I've noticed something that Hemingway noticed and a lot of other people notice is that depending upon the instrument that you use, you have a different voice. Like the voice that I write in longhand in my mm-hmm. notebooks is a lot more simplistic and direct. I, mm-hmm. I get to the core of what it is I'm trying to say. But you put a keyboard in front of me, or you put a phone in front of me with a little keypad. Yeah. The language gets more complex, a little more ostentatious, a little more something. But it's a it's not an intentional thing. It's not something that I think about doing. It's just a different voice comes out of my mind through a keyboard, through some sort of yeah. electronic technology than it does through a pen onto a piece of paper.
1: There's a ton of research on that. We could, I can look up and we should share it. Uh, about the difference in how we write longhand versus on a computer. Um, For example, when I type something out, like I'm typing a paper or something or whatever, I cannot remember any of it. But if I'm writing it longhand, like, okay, so, uh, you know, I'm an actor on the side. Mm -hmm. So when I'm memorizing lines, I'm handwriting them. I'm not typing them. You have to write your lines, usually like three times, and then you can remember it. Um, And then you recite them back and stuff like that. But if you type them, they're not committed to memory. That there's a connection between your brain and going through your arm to your hand to make it do something and then getting that feedback that feedback loop back to your brain that causes it to sink in. And and that's a that's that's a huge study.
0: When you're writing very interesting stuff. Let me throw this at you and see if it makes sense. When you're writing, you're actually constructing the entire word and the entire thought and the entire Mm -hmm. sentence uh, Mm -hmm. at once. You know, you have to go through and you have to process the entire word. You have to put the entire word through your arm onto the hand where you get what I'm saying as far as the sentence and and the entire thought, really. Whereas on a keyboard, you're doing it one letter at a time. And if
1: you've learned typing, right? So if you took like, say, took a typing course, it's even less connected to your brain because it's, it's just, it's muscle memory, right? Hitting those keys and where your fingers are positioned and all that kind of stuff. You're just going right along. None of it being committed, getting almost no feedback loop other than through your eyes
0: that it's correct. And even if it's not, the computer will correct it for you, which is another problem. How does that translate then to actually actual thinking, actual cognition and, and the process or the act of critical thought? What's the relationship here if with this uh, dependency upon digital technology? Yeah, I think I know what you're
1: latching on to. Um, no, you're right. I, I'm wondering if maybe this is your point in that is the, the digital technology, the ability to type, and and maybe it was the same with typewriters too. Who
0: knows? No, that's where that's where Hemingway, uh, I think yeah. it was Hemingway. There was either Hemingway or somebody else, but they literally said that, that they had a different voice. There was something different about yeah. the typewriter. Yeah,
1: you know, is that an effect on our critical thinking ability, our ability to flesh out a thought? Is it is it better? Is the thought better or more meaty or more substantial if you're handwriting it, you know, and then transcribing it into a typewriter or or, right. uh, or a keyboard? I've done or, that. Yeah. or rather than writing it on on the screen. I wonder if those thoughts are are less. Um, God, what's the word I'm looking for? Significant or. God, I'm trying to think of the word meaty. Meaty yeah. meaty, you know what I mean? Yeah. Is, is there some meat on the bones if you're versus long, longhand writing? I think you're onto to something. And I, I know there's been a lot of studies on, you know, memorization longhand and writing longhand versus on the typewriter or a keyboard. Um, and we just have to dig those, those studies up. But I, I think I know what you're on to. Yeah. I'm wondering if that affects our critical thinking ability too.
0: That's what I'm getting at. That's exactly yeah. what I'm getting at because I, I yeah. know, I, I have analyzed, I have taken the stuff from my notebooks and I have transcribed quite a bit of it. And a lot of the stuff that I've come up with, a great deal of the stuff that I've come mm-hmm. up with independently and, and the stuff that's really held weight for a long time, mm, a great deal of it has come out of those notebooks. And I have put them in yeah. and I've transcribed them by voice. Using my voice to put them into a computer,
1: mm-hmm. and again,
0: that's different because it's weird. It's weird hearing myself read my own writing because it doesn't feel natural because it's not my <laughs> spoken voice. Yeah, you see what I mean? There, even that's different.
1: Hmm.
0: And I, I, I will go in and th- and then I start, you know, lengthening the sentences and I start connecting the tissue and adding a little ostentatious language, even when I'm not writing it for somebody else. Like I start decorating it via the word processor, right, 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 and you start hit, you know, right-clicking thesaurus and right-clicking yes. synonym and right, yes. you know, you, you,
1: suddenly it's not entirely your piece of work, is it? It's a performance. You're able to edit so quickly, uh, whereas I think when you're longhand writing, um, unless you want a lot of chicken scratch on the page, which that was what I usually end up with, you self-edit before it comes out. And I think there's a good side to that and a bad side to that, right? Some people would say self-editing before you put it on paper might not be might be a negative thing. Um, I'm not so sure. I'm I'm wondering if maybe just taking the time to really think through the sentence. And think through the words before you put them down with your hand on the paper. I wonder if that's a better mental exercise than just scrawling out a bunch of thoughts and then editing it later. No, I don't think so. Your first draft is a pile of shit and then you come back to it. No,
0: because what what that does and the the theory behind that, and this is in the artist way, Julia Cameron, I think is her name. And I kind of do both typically but the best stuff that i come up with has always been just letting the hand go not thinking about editing not thinking about you know constructing everything properly on the first draft and if i run into a problem if i run into something that that is creating some sort of a conflict or mental cognitive dissonance i guess okay this seems inconsistent what's wrong then i let the hand go and work it out Mm-hmm. You know, rather than getting lost, because there's something about the process of having to slow your brain down, having to get from brain to hand to paper that lets you, maybe it's just a split second of thinking about it, yeah. letting your brain just sort of process and uh, I guess collate information. <laughs> no, I,
1: no I, agree. I don't know.
0: But I've done it both ways where I'll just sit there and I'll think. You know, well I'm I'm sitting here writing and try to process things and let things come to me and then start writing again, right? But the best stuff I think has typically been the 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 best raw material, the best most original material has just been listening to that voice come through my hand.
1: Yeah, I could, I could definitely see it. No, I mean that's there's like I said, there's a lot of stuff written about that and getting your, get, you know getting those words out of your head through your arm into your hand onto the paper and then back to your brain as you read it coming yeah, out, yeah, you know yeah. um, that there's a huge process going on there that I can't even begin to understand. But I think, um, uh, Oh my God, the famous philosopher, linguist um, Chomsky, mm-hmm. you'll, he's written a ton of stuff on that because he's got a lot of stuff on politics and economics and stuff, but he's actually uh, a language, you know, a, a language expert yeah. and w- why we speak the way we do, how we write the way we do. That's, that's his wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, and when I took a linguistics college back at Ohio state a thousand or so years ago, uh, we were we read a lot of chomsky back in the 80s and, and so that's where that's that was my first introduction to him whereas a lot of people are introduced to him are through, is through politics and economics but but uh, but anyway he's written a lot about how that works and and why it works so well it brought you know this this part of the conversation which is, is just i i love our podcast because we talk about <laughs> We're all over the place. What's <laughs> well, this like two guys just sitting down and yeah. having coffee and bullshitting for an hour and a half or so, but I, and I, I just love that. But anyway, um, one of the things I was really uh, troubled with a few years ago was when I learned that for, there was a certain period of time, I think it's over now, um, they stopped teaching cursive in school. I was
0: just going to talk about that. Yep, that was. Did you, have you heard that? I read something on this, the, uh, yeah, it stopped in the last 10 or 15 years because people don't write anymore. It, but, pretty much but, everything but is I, done on, on a computer.
1: Yeah, and now we have a generation of people who don't know how to read cursive. Yeah, um, which makes it almost a foreign language to them. All they know how to do in cursive is write their name. Yeah, um, I've seen this with the people that I've hired and I've worked with the younger folks. Uh, they print everything. Everything is printed. They print beautifully, though I must say. <laughs>
0: yeah, but that doesn't but they, that take away from the flow of writing. I, mean, I think so. The, the, I think the so. cognition of it. I can't print and do stream of consciousness writing.
1: To me, cursive is writing a word, whereas printing is writing each letter of the word.
0: Does that make sense? Cursive is constructing a word. It's almost an artistic form of mm-hmm. writing, whereas printing is, yeah, I should rephrase that. Cursive is an artistic expression of a word, whereas printing is just a simple construction of yeah, a word. Yeah, 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 you're
1: right.
0: Because everybody right. has their own handwriting. Yeah, but right. you can tell somebody's identity by their handwriting. It's an artistic expression, it's sure. their own expression of a word, whereas printing is just, eh. Yeah. Five letters.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah,
0: you can't read my handwriting
1: either way, but but the, yeah. the, you know because because it just comes out so quickly, I can't seem to control it very well. But yeah, um, the, I was really troubled by that. I was like, man, yeah. they're not even teaching cursive.
0: I'm going to hold some power here. Eventually, I'll be able to you know write things that people won't be able to read. We'll be able to communicate in code, Brian. <laughs>
1: And it's just in English and written out, but nobody can read it. (laughs) (laughs) That was troubling. But I, I wonder if that, I'd like to see if there's any research on that, the difference in thought construction when you print language versus Writing language and cursive. I bet there's there's got to be research on that. Yeah. and there's nothing that hasn't been researched yet. I bet there's something
0: out there. I got to I got to tell you this 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 whole thing it it brings me back to McLuhan and you know I'm not right or wrong as far as the the medium is the message thing whatever but it's a fascinating thing to think about is the the transition mm-hmm. between from the spoken word culture the storytelling culture to the print mm-hmm. culture what happened to mm-hmm. society what happened to people when they learned how to read and they had access to books and learned how to write became literate and then the transition again. Again to um, uh, transition when radio hit and then television and now oh. again to this to what y- primarily to people using a keyboard and communicating in short choppy thoughts
1: mm-hmm. you know
0: as opposed to having conversations or having reading a book. How many people? That's another thing. I can get into Nicholas Carr goes into this in The Shallows. You know the the, the attention span. I know you got to get yeah. going here in a minute, but that's another yeah. thing that's huge because yeah. the attention span, uh, being able to sit down and read a book, to focus on reading a book without being distracted. How does the inability to that relate to critical thought? In the inability to stay focused on what it is you're trying to suss out.
1: Well, that's what I, that's kind of what I was thinking about. Is I, I feel like we live. In, in you know, visual, in print, in audio, we live in a soundbite world, not in a well-thought- out, argument world. You know what I mean? We're, I do, yeah. We're in a critical world. We we you know, everything is sound bites. Everything is said and written in the shortest way possible. There's a phrase um, for
0: that called uh, that Carr used. We live in a click and bounce world. You it, know, it, yeah. Where we click on a on a tab, skim it. Yeah. We don't read yeah. it. We don't yeah. read anything anymore. Get what we want out of it and bounce to the next thing. So in well, other words, he says that you go along the surface. You're you're horizontally yeah. thinking rather than vertically thinking, finding something and drilling down on it.
1: Unless you run into something that's really interesting to you, but I've not found people that are much interested in anything anymore. But even <laughs> you know if you I mean? but even
0: if you do, <laughs> do you have the attention span required to actually pay attention and learn from it?
1: I, I don't personally. You're talking about you're you're, you're as they say that you're reading my mail. So I've found that I do much better with audiobooks than I do with sitting down and reading a book. I'm way too distracted to read a book. Um, I you know, I'll read a page and not have any idea what I just read. Whereas listening to it in the car on the in my 40-minute drive to, to and from work every day, I'm able to absorb the material and, and really kind of get into it. But then, you know, I've, I've always been sort of in that audio world, too, where I believe in great storytelling, mm-hmm. not just on paper, but actually telling the story. So maybe that's why I'm attracted to the audiobooks more than anything.
0: Yeah, it could be. But I'm, but I'm with you. I'm with you, 100%. That's treatable. I, I first was introduced to that. Not first. I sensed this a long time ago. Uh, Twenty years back, uh, that I couldn't just sit down and pay attention and read something like I used to be yeah. able to. It really bothered me. I thought I had. I was getting, heading into like early, early onset Alzheimer's or something. No. <laughs> Seriously, I thought you're I was be very normal. Yeah, and I I found Nicholas Carr's book. Once again, it's called The Shallows. If you're listening to this podcast, you should you you should be reading that book. Uh, and I found that in 2017, tore through it. And realized that it's changeable because the, neuro, the neuroplasticity of the mind, it, you yeah. can repair that. You can yeah. relearn these things. that the, You talk about the adaptability of human beings is because we have an adaptable mind, the brain will adjust positively or negatively. It doesn't yeah. know the difference. It just adapts. Neuroplasticity. Well, you so find I, something that you're interested in and, and it'll work. Like, you know, I, you know I, reading a
1: novel, I have trouble. I can read a play and recite it back to you. You right. know what I mean? Right. So it's different. Yes,
0: but it's but it's storytelling. But that's discipline, though, too. I mean, we used to have that. We used to be able to to discipline ourselves and not give in to the urge to go out and, you know, put the book down and go eat a Snickers bar. You know that (laughs) that, but 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 that awareness of knowing, okay, this is the bounce and click thing. This is the horizontal urge that I've developed, the habit that I've developed by being on the Internet, being on my phone for so long. This urge isn't natural. I can control this. Just focus, fucking focus on what I'm doing. And it does work and it's quick. It doesn't yeah, take and long, that, and, and that ties into my
1: argument, which is a different podcast entirely. And that you know, with the ADHD argument, and that we just we, you know that is really the problem. Yes. It's not an it's not yes. it's, it's not a, a biological or or psychological diagnosis. That's the problem. It's just something that we haven't been trained to do, and people want to diagnose themselves with an attention deficit disorder when really it's just a, it's an attentiveness disorder, right? And we're choosing to not pay attention because we either haven't been taught. Uh, so I guess that's not technically a choice. Uh, or uh, we just find that there's not that much out there that we find interesting. You you know, know the
0: technology, means- though, conditions us not to pay attention for a long time. It, right. it, again, it goes back to that bounce and click thing, that we're yes. doing it all the time. We're training our brain to be here for a second, move on, move on, move on, find something else, find something else. It's all over. You pay attention to how the te- how we use technology subconsciously, right. how we are going from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. If, once you're aware of that, you start kind of just you know put up a little warning signal in your mind. Okay, yeah. pay attention to how often I do this. It's astounding.
1: Yeah, we're trained to not pay attention, rather than it being
0: some conditioned sort of diagnosis. I we're think conditioned. conditioned is a better word.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. We're conditioned yeah. to not pay attention, rather than it being some diagnosis. ADHD is so astronomically overdiagnosed; it's almost criminal.
0: And that's the one thing about po- uh, podcasts that I I find encouraging. It will go out on a, on a positive note here because uh, Joe Rogan has the most successful podcast in the world by far, right? Yeah. You know how long yeah. his podcasts go? <laughs> Forever. I think Sometimes I've seen some hours. that are like four. I was going to yes. say, I think I've seen a few that are like four hours I've, long. There have been a few, I think, that are longer. Dan Carlin's History Podcast, I think he he only puts them out like once a, I don't know, a month, month or two months or whatever it is, but they're four and a half, five hours fucking long. Oh, yeah. They better but, be fucking good. But they, they <laughs> are popular. <laughs> They do well. So people, I guess if they're engaged, maybe it's what you were talking about. Maybe it's the storytelling. Maybe it's having someone talking in your ear rather than having to flip through the pages and, Mm -hmm. you know, go through the exertion of reading, but people have a problem too. But, but Rogan is huge. People are managing enough time to put him at the top of every podcast metric in the, in the world. That's
1: true, man.
0: So, you know, maybe, I don't know, there's something there, but, um, to go back, I, I guess to put a put a bow on this, it all comes back to I. I don't think, to me, and we can argue and discuss this, I guess at some other point. But what Marshall McLuhan was saying about this, I don't think it's all the content. I think the technology that whether or not we're aware of it, that's debatable, but it does have a significant effect on us. The content is something completely, yeah. completely separate. Beyond that, I think.
1: Maybe so. the combination of the two creates some sort of a problem, is, is really the problem, right? It's the right. It's the convenience uh, and it's the way we've decided to use it and all of those the two, the combination of the two, the way we've uh, we've worked it out is has becoming a more detrimental. Yeah. Um. I, I don't know. I, I really just don't know. But that's just my first my first inclination. Yeah. Is uh, how we're using a technology that's more powerful than what we can understand.
0: Yeah, was mine too. But upon further review. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. All right, let's uh, put a bow on this, and okay. I know we got to get going. Uh, a little over an hour in, so uh, I'm going to yeah. add some stuff I think to the back end of this. So, okay. Great. That'll be perfectly honest with you. I thought I had more to add to this than I really do. I was going to talk about George Washington, his farewell address, his warnings about factionalism. <laughs> And how that invites people to misrepresent the the opponent, the enemy. It well, ties into Walter Lippman, the chaff of silliness. That if you're not careful, free speech becomes uh, becomes more of a nuisance than what it's worth. If the people deploying their free speech don't give a shit about truth. And how all of this, both what Washington was talking about, And uh, what Lippman referred to, (laughs) that's being ignited by the informational anarchy being brought on by social media. That's what I was going to get into. It deserves more time than this. And I like this episode the way it is. Marshall McLuhan, Understanding Media is the name of the book. Also check out Neil Postman, Technopoly is a great place to start. Nicholas Carr as well. EscapingtheCave.com is the website. Thanks for clicking in. We'll talk to you next time. So long.